Please open your Bibles once again to Joshua chapter 7 and 8. We'll be studying these two chapters today. <clears throat> if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that reading begins on page 182. I want to begin by reading the last verse of chapter 6, verse 27, and then the first verse of chapter 7, just to give us the, the flavor of this passage. Listen to God's word, beginning at Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. I want you to recall what we read in Deuteronomy as we, as we look at this, that the Lord had promised to make Israel famous because they were his treasured possession, because they worshipped him. And he, he intended for them to live under his rule, under his word. Well, here in these two verses, we see he's done that. He's made Joshua's fame spread, the leader of Israel. And yet we see Israel has broken God's covenant. These are odd verses in that for much of the book of Joshua, the reader of Joshua has no more knowledge of what's happening than the characters of the story of Joshua. So think back to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, when the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. At first, we are just introduced to a man with a, a sword in his hand. And then slowly, we're told he's the commander of the Lord's army. And then it's only at the end of that story when he says to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. It's only then that both Joshua and we, the reader, realize together that this man is a, a manifestation of God himself. If you pay attention, you'll find much of the book of Joshua is like that. You don't get any extra knowledge. But there are a few places where we do, and this is one of those places. It's like the author takes aside the reader and, and whispers something that he doesn't want the, the actors on the stage to hear. We get some privileged information. And so we're told these two things. First, we're told that Joshua's fame is spread throughout all the land. And second, in chapter 7, verse 1, we're told about Achan's sin of taking some of the devoted things and that the Lord's anger is burning against Israel because of this. So Achan's sin was, was in Jericho, this great victory. In the midst of that great victory, he took some of the devoted things. And now the, the narrator of Joshua is telling us about it. Now this first thing, the, like I said, Joshua may have had some indication that his fame was spreading. Perhaps he could tell, like, these enemy nations or these enemy cities, they're not coming out to battle us. They must be afraid. Maybe he had some inkling. But the second thing is clear. He has no idea about Achan's sin. It's hidden to him, but we know about it. And so as we go into this chapter on Ai, and, or these two chapters of Ai and Achan, we need to consider why would the author do this? Why would he give us this extra knowledge at this point? I think it's because the Lord wants us to be alert for something as we read this. 
we have a, a heightened sense of how much the Lord has blessed Israel. He's made Joshua's fame spread and of the terrible thing that has happened in Israel. As God will later call it, an outrageous thing has been done in Israel. And then armed with this knowledge, we're to read and take special notice of how sin plays out in the life of Israel. The Lord is saying to us as readers, readers who ourselves struggle with falling into sin, watch and learn from this. And so this morning, we're going to try our best to do that. First, we're going to look at the ways and wages of sin. Second, we'll see that the Lord, we'll see the way the Lord restores sinners. And finally, we'll see that restoration leads to worship. We'll spend most of our time looking at the ways and wages of sin, then the way the Lord restores sinners, and finally, that restoration leads to worship. To see the ways and wages of sin, let's read chapter 7. We'll start again at verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 15. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before, the, before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things 
shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. In this passage, we see that sin is like a weed that crops up everywhere and does all kinds of damage. So I want us to go through these several ways and wages of sin, and some of these we'll go through rather quickly. The first way of sin I want us to see is that sin defies God's rule. Sin defies God's rule. In this case, Achan's sin disobeyed the Lord in specific ways and in general ways. So he specifically disobeyed the command at Jericho, chapter 6, verse 18, to keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. God had said that these silver and gold and precious things were to be taken and put in the Lord's treasury. And Achan took them and put them in his own tent. And then we see that Achan violated at least three of the Ten Commandments. So in the Lord's speech in verse 11, he indicts Israel for stealing and lying. And then later when Achan confesses his sin in verse 21, he confesses to coveting. So Achan coveted, stole, and lied. That last one is interesting, his confession, or the Lord accusing him of lying, because we don't have any record in the text of, of Achan verbally misleading anyone. The only thing he did was cover up what he'd stolen and put it in his tent. Actions can lie as well as words can. Achan's sin here rejects the Lord's rule. And he, we see that his rejection wasn't just external in what he did. It began with his heart, with his, his coveting of these things that belong to the Lord. And this is at the heart of all sin. When we sin, we're saying in our hearts, not your way, Lord, but mine. And like in Achan's case, our sin is not just those actions, those external things that we do and say, but it involves all of us our hearts as well, our, our inward intentions and motivations. And this can be tricky because outwardly we can appear to be doing what's right and yet motivated by selfish ambitions. We can outwardly conform to God's law while inwardly rebelling and rejecting his call to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we're trying to identify sin in our own hearts, we can't take a superficial look. We have to ask ourselves the deeper questions like, am I joyfully submitting to God's rule? Are there any ways that I'm outwardly obedient but inwardly rebellious? And where have I rejected the Lord's commands to love God and love my neighbor? Sin defies the Lord's rule. As we're reading Joshua, he wants us to be alert for that. We also see another way of sin. Sin rejects God's love. I'm using this phrase, God's love here, to refer to the covenant that the Lord made with Israel. After all, these commands of the Lord, they didn't just drop down out of heaven with no context. They are given to Israel in the context of his redeeming them from Egypt and establishing a covenant with them. The Lord obligating himself to care for Israel, to, to bless them, his covenant love. And so when the Lord identifies Israel's sin in verse 1, he says they have broken faith. In verse 11, he says they have transgressed the covenant of the Lord. 
You see, sin is not simply rule-breaking. It's a rejection of the covenant love of God. And sin has always had this character. When Eve sinned, Moses says that she saw that the, tr- the fruit was good and desirable to the eyes, and she took it and ate it. Then when Achan describes his own sin in chapter 7, verse 21, we see these same exact words. He saw among the spoil a beautiful, which is the Hebrew word for good, cloak from Shinar. He coveted them and took them. He saw what appeared good to him and he took it. These statements about goodness and beauty that sin makes, they're not detached observations. These are the beginning of treasonous statements which say, this is a good thing that the Lord has withheld from me. Despite all the blessings that Eve and Achan enjoyed as God's people in God's presence, they chose to believe in the goodness of these forbidden things instead of the goodness of God. They rejected God's love. We see this in another way in Joshua's lament, this prayer he prays where he falls on his face. He seems to be praying here, I think, as a representative of faithless Israel. And I say that because he says, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Joshua sounds exactly like the grumbling people of the wilderness, doesn't he? He's, he's questioning the miraculous work of God in, in helping them cross the Jordan on dry land and in tearing down the walls of Jericho. He questions the goodness and wisdom of God here. So when we turn to sin, we're saying the promises of sin are more certain and more blessed than the promises of God. Our sin says, there's some deficiency in God's love for me. He's withholding something from me. Or we say like Joshua said, Lord, why have you brought me here? What were you thinking? Putting me in this place with these difficult people in my life. In our sin, we reject the love of God. We doubt the goodness of his ways. But as we read in the book of Joshua, nothing is happening to Israel by accident. All these things that have come into their lives are part of God's plan. Even in the present calamity, in their, in their shame before Ai, he is at work. It's clear to us as we read Joshua that's the case. But don't we struggle to see that in our own lives? If we want to understand the sin in our lives, we have to identify the lies that we are believing. We have to understand how we are rejecting the Lord's promises. And we often struggle to see this. It would be good for us if we all memorized the prayer of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need God to identify our sin for us, just the way he identifies it here for his people. You know, sometimes we need the help of other brothers and sisters in the church to identify our sin. Our brothers and sisters, they might be able to see things more clearly in our lives than we can. They may be able to help us expose the lies we're believing in ways that we can't by ourselves. 
Well, this kind of transparency and vulnerability doesn't come naturally to us, but we can trust the Lord when he says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Our lives are not an accident. The Lord's brought us to where we are through his faithful love. And he's even at work when we're facing the consequences of our sin. God's ways are good. So we should ask, is, is my sin blinding me to the wisdom of God's ways? That may be where repentance needs to begin for you. Repent of the ways you've doubted God's goodness. Sin defies God's rule. Sin rejects God's love. In our text in chapter 7, Achan's sin is the only one that's specifically called out. But I think we're meant to see that there are other sinful things happening in the camp. And one way to put it is that sin makes us stupid. What I mean by stupid here is that Israel seems to forget that it's the Lord who saves. Look at verse 3 and what the spies say to Joshua. Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Take special note of that phrase, do not make the whole people toil up there. Now, who is the one toiling for Israel in Joshua? Who is the one fighting for them? Now, yes, Israel had to make those marches around the city, but it was God who made the walls fall down. It was God who dried up the Jordan. It's God who's carrying out this conquest. It's God who gives Jericho into the hands of the Israelites, and it's God who will give Ai into their hands. When sin infects us as God's people, we assume that we can do the things that only God can do. Or we look back and we think that we deserve credit for the good things in our lives. This is how sin makes us stupid. It blinds us to our own weakness and inability. And with those kinds of blinders on, we're going to fall into more sin and devastation, just like Israel did at Ai. This defeated Ai represents a complete reversal for Israel. And we hear this in the ways that their, their failure is described. So verse 5 says that the hearts of the people of Israel now melted and became as water. This heart's melting has been the description that's been applied to the Canaanites, both in prophecy before Israel entered the land and then in the words of Rahab in chapter 2. It's the Canaanites' hearts who were supposed to melt at the sight of Israel. But now God's people's hearts are melting at little old Ai. And then you hear it again in Joshua's lament. He says that Israel, in verse 7, has been given into the hands of the Amorites. In verse 12, it reaches the climax where the Lord says, Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Now, this is in direct contrast to what Joshua had been promised in chapter 1, verse 5, that no man shall be able to stand before you. Now, Joshua and Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Do you see how everything has changed? It's flipped on its head. When you add all this together, we see that these reversals have come upon Israel because they have made themselves enemies of God. They've essentially become Canaanites themselves. In terms of the book of Leviticus, we could say the whole camp has been polluted by these 
holy objects that Achan has stolen. And when the Lord's holiness comes into contact with what is common or unclean, judgment breaks out. So now it is Israel who must be devoted to destruction. The Lord says, I will be with you no more. His anger burns against him. So you've seen the, way, the ways of sin. Now these are the wages of sin, right? What happens to Israel in Joshua is the picture of what all sin deserves. When we rebel against the rule of God and we reject his goodness, we earn his wrath. And there's no escape from it. We will reap his burning anger. The New Testament describes the wages of sin as death. And by saying this, the scriptures don't mean just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Instead of knowing the saving and blessed presence of God for all eternity, unrepentant sinners only know the painful, wrathful presence of God for all eternity. I think in in light of this, we should remember that the commander of the army of the Lord refused to say whether he was on Joshua's side or not. The question is, are you on the Lord's side? And now they have the commander of the Lord appearing to them, and they have broken his covenant. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death because we defy the Lord's rule, and he's our maker. We deserve death because we've rejected his love. He's the saving God, but we grumble against his salvation and say, why have you brought us here? Sin is proud, and it takes credit for God's work. Sin pollutes us and makes us unfit for fellowship with the holy God. Because of all these things, the just and righteous punishment for sin is death. A just and righteous God must must punish sin this way. The wages of sin is death. Thankfully, this passage doesn't only explore the wages and wages of sin, but it proclaims that the Lord restores sinners. That might not be immediately apparent, but I hope it will be as we read. So we're going to read now verses 16 of chapter 7 down through chapter 8, verse 2. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God, um, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. 
And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is the Valley of Achor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his hand and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. One of the strange things, I think, as we read this account is that Achan's sin, his individual sin, impacts the whole people of Israel. It's not just Achan who suffers, but everyone is defeated at Ai. It's not just Achan who's punished, but his whole family appears to have been punished. And Achan and his family and all their possessions, their, their bodies are burned and their things are burned and consumed and buried under this great heap of stones. If we think about our sin, we usually think about it only on an individual level, a personal, private thing. But that's not the case here. As Paul said in that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, the leaven of, of sin leavens the whole lump. It leavens the whole people. The whole people are marked together as sinful they're considered as a whole. And this is the case throughout, throughout God's, uh, the history of God's people. So in Exodus, God's people as a whole are called my firstborn son. They're called a kingdom, a priest, a holy nation. Together, they're to represent the Lord's holiness to the nations. And Achan and brought his entire family and the entire people of God into contact with these holy things. He brought them into his tent. He buried them in the earth, the earth of God's promised land. And by this, he polluted the whole people of Israel. What we should find remarkable here is that there is any restoration at all. The very fact that the Lord lays out a pathway to restore his relationship to his people is, is sheer grace. The Lord didn't owe Israel anything. He'd been abundantly gracious to bring them this far. He'd miraculously saved them, and now they are even eating off the produce of Israel. He'd kept his promises that he'd made centuries ago, and yet they repeatedly rebelled against him. They rejected his love. He'd given them his commands. He told them how to avoid becoming a devoted thing, and yet they'd broken his commands. And yet, even though it says his, his anger burns against them, he doesn't immediately break out in anger against them. He provides this way of restoration. He says that he will once again be with them if they remove the devoted things. They will once again be able to stand against their enemies if they take away the devoted things from their midst. This is all of grace. Now, we struggle to see it that way, don't we? We tend to naturally sort of side with Achan and his family and say, surely this is too harsh. That's why we spent so much time this morning on the ways and wages of sin. 
We cannot see the grace of God if we cannot see the unrighteousness of our sin. But I want us to look here at how the Lord reconciles, the ways of reconciliation. And the first way of reconciliation is that the way of reconciliation requires an honest reckoning with sin. Israel has to identify the sinner, right? So God devises this plan to bring them by, by lot. And he helps, he helps uh, Joshua to identify Achan in a supernatural way, right? The Lord identifies Israel's sin. Even as we read it, it's a dramatic scene, though we know who the sinner is. We know it's going to be Achan, but we have to walk through the tribes being brought by and the clans and the families. For his part, Achan provides a model confession. Once he's identified, he stops the cover-up. He does not admit to merely making a mistake like we might. As, we've already, or as we observe, he, he confesses both what he did and why he did it. He identifies his covetousness as a kind of root sin. His confession was specific. It went to the heart. And it didn't blame others. Right? That, again, that cuts against a lot of confessions we often hear. Where we explain away or justify our sin or we minimize it. We say, well, if I, if I hadn't been in this situation or if that person hadn't been crazy, I wouldn't have sinned. Achan didn't do any of that. So he identifies himself as a covenant breaker. We saw that in Joshua's lament, he seems to kind of speak as a representative of sinful Israel, faithless Israelite, questioning why God had brought them across the Jordan. And in a strange irony, Achan here speaks as a kind of model of faith. His confession is a sign that Israel as a whole, they're doing what God has asked of them. They are honestly confronting the ways they sin against their God. We have to see that there is no reconciliation with God apart from this, this kind of honest confession. We have to own what we've done before the Lord and before those we've sinned against. There's no place for blaming others for our circumstances. We can't say, I sin, but you sin too. A righteous confession of sin is honest. It doesn't try to justify sin, explain it away, or minimize it. Do you confess your sin? Do you confess it to God? Are you clear and specific before the Lord with the ways that you've broken God's law? And when you sin against others, are you confessing it to them? Are you clear and specific with them? A good thing that everyone can reflect on is how does God want me to grow in honestly confessing my sin? That would be a good thing to talk about with someone close to you. We don't confess our sins because we're trying to beat ourselves up or pay for our sins. We confess our sin because the Lord promises to restore those who repent. We deal honestly with sin because we want the blessing of fellowship with God more than we want to defend ourselves and protect our sin. So the way of restoration requires an honest reckoning with sin. We see a second way of restoration. And that is that the Lord's way of restoration requires the price of sin be paid. The Lord says in chapter 7, verse 15, He who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has 
because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This phrase, the, an outrageous thing in Israel, is only used a few times in the Old Testament. One place it shows up is in Amnon's violation of his sister, these two children of David, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12. The prophet Jeremiah uses it to describe Israel's rampant adultery and false prophecy, that they tell lies in the name of the Lord. These are outrageous things in Israel, and Achan's sin is one of these. His specific sin is that he's taken these devoted things, and the Lord was very clear that if Israel took the devoted things, they would become a thing devoted for destruction. And God's law addresses what happens if a person becomes a devoted thing. In Leviticus 27, 29, it says, no one devoted who is, devo- who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. It seems noteworthy in this context that so much attention is paid to Achan's tent in verses 22 and 23. The word tent is repeated. So instead of these holy things being in the Lord's tent, they are in Achan's tent. These holy things have been blasphemously defiled by Achan. So Achan signed his own death sentence when he took the devoted things and put them in his tent. It appears he, deci- he signed the death sentence of his whole family because he corrupted his family with these things. And so for Israel to be restored, there has to be a death. And there can be no substitute in this case, right? The Lord has stipulated that. The, this devoted person must be killed. The covenant has been broken. Israel has been defiled. Achan and his family must pay the price. And at the end of the episode, after Achan is executed and burned and the stones are piled on, verse 26 of chapter 7 says, the Lord turned from his burning anger. This is sobering. Human beings cannot be restored to a right relationship with God if sin's price is not paid. In this way, the Achan episode shows us the weakness of the old covenant law. It it made no provision for a case like Achan, right? No atonement could be made for him. There was no sacrifice available to redeem him. This is what the gospel, this is what makes the gospel such good news. Our Lord functions as a kind of anti-Achan, doesn't he? He's the perfectly righteous and holy one, but he pays the price for the sins of all his sinful people. And Jesus' death also turns away the wrath of God from sinners. But Jesus had no sin of his own. Jesus died for his people, not as a sinner, but as a spotless lamb of God in the place of sinners. And Jesus' death has the power to pay the price for the sins of the most heinous covenant breakers. Jesus' death could even cover Achan's sin. Through Christ's death and resurrection, men like David are saved, right? Men who had murdered and committed adultery. Through Christ's death and resurrection, men like the Apostle Paul are saved, a man who persecuted Christ in his church. Now, under the old covenant, those sinners had no hope. But in Christ, there is hope 
the hope of forgiveness for those who by faith trust in Christ. Right? Doesn't the Apostle Paul proclaim, by faith we've died with Christ and we live with him. So even sinners like us who have broken God's covenant, who have defiled ourselves in all kinds of ways, even we can be saved through the power of Christ's perfect sacrifice. The way of restoration requires that sin's price be paid. And in Israel's case, Achan sort of symbolically pays that price, but we know that this payment was only partial. It was only Jesus Christ, who is true God and truly righteous man, who can fully pay sin's price. That's what our restoration depends on. It depends on Jesus paying our price, the price our sins deserves. Do you know that to be true for yourself? In the execution and the burning and the burial of Achan, Israel got a very upfront picture of the cost of their sin. Have you confronted the cost of your sin? To see sin's cost, look to Christ. This is what verse 3 of the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, is all about. It says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. At the cross we get a, a true estimate of the nature of our sin. At the cross, we see Jesus bearing the awful load of our sin. The way of reconciliation requires sin's price be paid. Thank God that he's provided the payment in Christ. Just a couple other things about the way of restoration. The Lord's way of restoration is complete restoration. So we read chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 earlier. After the execution of Achan, we see the Lord once again encourages people. Be strong and courageous. Don't, be, don't fear or just be dismayed. The Lord can be with his people once again. And again, he announces, I'm going to give the king of Ai into your hand, just like I gave the king of Jericho. Everything is reversed. The Lord is with his people once again. And just to spoil the ending, they do conquer Ai. They follow the Lord's plan. They ambush them. And they... They kill all the inhabitants of Ai. They take the city, and it too becomes a sign of the Lord's miraculous deliverance. We read that the Lord instructed Joshua to use his javelin like Moses used his staff, and he, he holds out the javelin through the entire time that the, the army of Israel is enacting the plan and taking the city. And so we read that he kept his javelin extended until the whole thing had been done. God is with his people. A total victory, orchestrated by the Lord, enabled by the Lord, accomplished by the Lord. When the Lord restores, he restores completely. And I also want you to see when the Lord restores, he restores abundantly. It's fascinating that the Lord plans the ambush, right? He tells Joshua, do an ambush. And, and this he does because he's taking what has happened before, right? The first time Joshua goes out or Joshua's men go out and they flee before the Aians, if you can say it that way. <laughs> they flee before the citizens of Ai. Well, now the Lord's going to use that to, to their advantage. 
They're going to flee once again, but this time they've got the reserves in back. You see, the Lord uses the shame of Israel, them turning their backs in fear, and out of this shame, he brings their victory. Even their shame does not go to waste. Do you see the abundant restoration of the Lord? Not only that, but we see the Lord here allows them to take spoil from Ai. He doesn't withhold. He's not stingy. The Lord holds no grudges. He remembers their sin no more. I mean, how tragic it is to think of Achan. If only he had waited and waited for Ai, he would have gotten his wealth that he so desired. The Lord's restoration is abundantly generous. And what does that look like for us? You know, does it mean we're going to be healthy and wealthy and trouble-free? No, the, the material blessing is not what we're after. What, what we receive from the Lord is the fullness of fellowship with God. The Lord does not hold our previous sins against us. The Lord doesn't hold us at arm's length. When the Lord restores us, he restores us completely and abundantly and generously. And don't we often think that we've, we've made such a mess of our lives, there can be no hope of restoration. But the Lord will use even your shame to bless you. The Lord has not brought you to where you are by accident. The Lord restores. The Lord would restore you to intimate fellowship with God. That's what Christ promises, isn't it? The gift of the Spirit dwelling within us, making his home with us, leading us in righteousness. And that leads us to our concluding point. The Lord's restoration leads to worship. I promise this will be brief, but I want to read these last words of chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered, it, they offered on it a burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the Lord of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, and stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them on Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded Joshua, that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So as we read earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses instructed Israel to worship on Mount Ebal. And they're supposed to stand on either side of the ark, divided in half, and, and half of them are going to pronounce the blessings of the covenant and half the curses. And here they, they keep this command. They are gathered to worship. God restores them so that they can worship him. And in their worship, we see who they truly are. God's people gathered around God's throne, symbolized by the ark, hearing God's word. This is a strange ceremony, right? It does have sacrifices and a meal, the peace offerings they could eat. 
But the, the central element of the ceremony is the word of the Lord, the reading of the word and the writing of the word. Somehow these uncut stones are covered with plaster and Joshua writes the law of God on them. And we don't know exactly what does that mean. Does it mean the Ten Commandments or something more? But he writes the law, the word written. God's people are here gathered around his word, the treasured possession of God, redeemed by the Passover lambs. Here they are, recounting the Lord's love for them, seeing his law being written, hearing it read. This is who God's people are. Now, brothers and sisters, we worship the same Lord today. And here we are, we're gathered around his word. But by his grace, when we gather, we don't divide up half of us to pronounce the curses that we fear. That's because we proclaim Christ, the living word, who bore the curses for us. As we worship Christ, cursed for our sake, so that we can be saved, we see who we are. We discover who we are as we worship. We are those great sinners who have been restored by our abundant and generous, gracious Lord, completely restored through the blood of Christ. That's who we are. And the Lord's restoration leads us to worship. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to see the weight of our unrighteousness. We're so tempted to belittle it, to explain it away. We don't like to think of it. We pray that you would grant us a sense of it, a sense of your holiness and how we violate it a sense of your love and how we reject it. Grant us a sense of these things so that we can see the marvel of your grace, that you offer a way of restoration to sinners. Help us to marvel and wonder at this. In Christ's name, amen.